Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. We're here every week at 12 noon, Dale and Robert and I, and uh, we're here to defend and to promote public education. We have a website at www.adogs.info and uh, you can find our latest press release 637 on it. Uh, We're here to defend public education but we're very particular about what we mean by public education because in these days of rabid uh, privatisation of anything that might have money attached to it or might be possible of making a profit uh, for international capital or capital of any kind, then uh, we have to be very specific about what public as opposed to private is. And for us, public is public in purpose and outcome Above all, it's public in access. Public education is accessible to every child, which means that children from all walks of life and all backgrounds and all religious beliefs are are just there. They are given the right, not the charity, but the right to an education in our public schools. Our public schools should be owned and controlled by the uh, the state but they're not. They should be publicly owned and controlled by a, a responsible minister of who is who is somebody who represents our people but we know that this is not happening and they should be the only ones that are publicly funded because they're the only ones that are publicly accountable. Above all, our so-called democratic governments should provide first-class public education system for every child in this country. And that, unfortunately for Australia at the moment, is not in the DNA of the private school privatisation promoters currently in power in Canberra and, to a lesser extent, in our states. So we are very much against also state aid to private schools. Why? because we believe in the separation of religion and the state in Australia. Now, people tell us that we have a secular state. Even even Cardinal Pell tells us that we have a secular state and separation of church and state when it suits him. But I haven't noticed his church giving back the billions and billions and billions of state aid that they have received over the last 40 or 50 years and are still receiving Uh, So our press release 637 is an article by Max Wallace from the Rationalist Society and it's entitled Religion's Dying Swan Act. Secularism is banishing it from the public square by Max Wallace. And this was published on Tuesday the 5th of January 2016 in Online Opinion. It's an often heard claim expressed in newspaper articles, academia and online public forums that religion's being banished from the public square. And the allegation is that in Australia, the intrusion of religious opinions in a public forum, however that may occur, is now considered by many to be inappropriate and this is a form of censorship. Secondly, the widespread notion is afoot that politicians' private religious convictions should not be expressed publicly and it's a form of self-censorship by them that denies citizens access to their true motives so that much political debate where religion has its perspective is therefore unfairly defined out of existence. 
The result is that religion's being unfairly banished from the public square and we'd all benefit if religion got a fair shake. Well, listeners, is a question of which religion. Uh, he's here talking about Christianity, but in Australia these days, uh, what about um, Hinduism, Buddhism, Muslims? Uh, what's that? Mohammedism? Uh, you mentioned it. What about Scientology? There are many, many religions at the moment in Australia. Should they all be given a fair shake in the public domain? You can see why a lot of Christians are thinking that. In many ways, religion, Christianity in particular, appears to be front and centre in Australian public life. For example, Australia is a constitutional monarchy with the head of state, the Queen, also the Supreme Governor of the Church of England. She in turn answers to her Christian God and God is mentioned in the preamble to the Constitution. All parliaments bar one, the ACT, open with Christian prayers and the Australian flag has three Christian crosses in the Union Jack corner. The Australian Centre for Christianity and Culture, which is partly funded by the government, is symbolically just down the road from the federal parliament and Australia's secular national anthem regularly includes contrived Christian verses which are sung in private religious schools against protocol and there's no sanction against them. The federal government gives at least $5.3 billion annually to private religious schools. I'll read that again. The federal government gives at least $5.3 billion annually to private religious schools. Not all of them Christian schools, of course. State funerals are always held in cathedrals, and the legal year starts with a procession of judges into a church with its accompanying quest for God's influence on judicial decision-making. Although um, I'd like to add there that um, there are usually two um, services for the judiciary, or perhaps even three. Uh, There are certainly one in the Anglican Cathedral and another just up the road in St Patrick's or the Catholic Cathedral. And then I think the Jewish group might also have um, some kind of service. Now, religious organisations have also received approximately $700 of public funding to employ mainly evangelical chaplains in mainly public schools. And these chaplains are paid approximately $20,000 each per annum to help counsel children, but of course not religiously. But on the other hand, secular counsellors are barred from being employed. At its core... Max Wallace suggests that the public square argument, which is in truth exaggerated, is really a contest between those who would elevate religious belief above government. They are theocrats. And those who believe that government should not be beholden to any one particular view and govern fairly for all. And they call themselves secularists. I'll read that again. Because it's a very important distinction, the distinction between theocrats and secularists. Members of the dogs are, many of them, of religious belief. They have a religious belief, but they are not theocrats and consider themselves to be secularists because they believe it is good for religious belief if you separate the church from the state. At its core, Max suggests, the public square argument, which is in truth exaggerated, is really a contest between those who would elevate religious belief above government and their theocrats. And as we know, theocrats tell the government what they should do about certain matters like state aid for religious schools and abortion and homosexuality and various other moral issues. And then there are those who believe that government should not be beholden to any one particular view and should govern fairly for all. And they call themselves secularists because they believe in a secular state, that the government should be separate from the religious. Now, when laws are introduced or suggested to create equality between religious and non-religious citizens, such as gay marriage, 
the theocrats call discrimination against their belief as if their God trumps civil law in our democracy because they have a one-eyed, committed sense of religious entitlement. As theocrats, many public square theorists tend to extract their data from their starting point, which is that everything in the Western world, including government, law and democracy, derives from Christianity. Well, I don't know where they get that argument from, because the particularly the, the um, Western democratic um, tradition in the British tradition comes from the Anglo-Saxon um, Parlement, and uh, they were pagans, as I recall. And they, for some reason, they believe that this is self-evident, that our democracies come from Christianity. And that is why they should be called theocrats, according to Max Wallace. So um, he points to the civilizations in Mesopotamia and Egypt and Athens and the Greek philosophers, and above all, he points to the Enlightenment, and the and this contributions of many other civilizations, but they claim that Christianity is above them about about them. However, Max Wallace suggests that the public square argument is really a creed occur concerning dot religions decline in the West, which is demonstrated by the religion's steady decline in terms of memberships and church attendances. Secondly, as an idea in the public mind expressed in the census figures that religionship is slowly but surely sinking. And thirdly, that religion's overall inability to prevent social reforms that tend to undermine religion through their secularising effect. Now, on the first point, the August 2016 census shows that how, just how low religion sunk in Australia when for the first time the citizens are asked up front whether they have a religion or not, and if so, what it is. Unlike the 2013 New Zealand census, when Christianity slumped to somewhat where between 49 and 42 percent, because the New Zealand citizens can tick more than one box for religious affiliation, the Australian census has for decades concealed the no-religion option at the bottom of the religion question under a checklist of religious options. The result of shifting it to the top of the question is going to be a very interesting exercise in the next census. And there's now a good reason why politicians in particular tend to soft-pedal on their religious beliefs. And the first is that electorally it can be a kiss of death because disinterested citizens don't want to be preached to. In a 2015 Ipsof survey that um, the rationalists and the secularists in Sydney ran, um, most Australians, voters, indicated that they were not influenced by religion at all. And the conversation of the 13th of September 2015 found that 86% of Australians do not take religion into consideration when they vote. And 26% said the question had no application to them. And 60% said that religion did not influence them at all. And 14% said they were somewhat influenced. And only 5% said that they were very much influenced. And on the second point, by way of evidence, there's a list of social initiatives and reforms that have been achieved in spite of the conservative church opposition since the 1970s. The fact is, dear listeners, that we did create, and we still have, although we have to fight for it, free, secular and compulsory public schools. And we did have and we still have the opening of museums and public libraries and later sports activities and shops on Sundays and there's a whole list of others which is not of um, so much interest to the dogs since we're interested in education. Now a case study of some of these battles was the Western Australian Parliament of 2002 which introduced gay and prostitution law reforms and eased off on prohibiting abortion. And it was a very, very emotional um, time, apparently, in Parliament. But the reforms, if you want to call them that, actually got through. And the Liberal MP, Arthur Marshall, said it was very intense. It was the force of religion against the force of free thought. It got very spiky and it got very personal and there were people crying in the Assembly. But the reforms got through. 
And John Quigley, this is a very interesting statement. John Quigley was openly Catholic, um, but he went against what was obviously the Catholic pressure. And he said what theocrats don't want to hear. Once you're in a public service, he said, you're not there to pass criminal laws to outlaw behaviours because the Catholic Church agrees or disagrees with it. All of the above and much more is simply omitted from the public square discussion. Now, Max Wallace suggests that to, the push to get more religious discourse into the public square won't work because the public are in fact over it. Um, he says, well, good luck to people who do. I mean, it is a free country and they have every right uh, to um, discuss their uh, and also to promote their religious beliefs. But if they do this, they're serving the cause of the non-religious very well because the lo longer it goes on, so the more disaffected citizens will turn off. Because politicians of all faiths and none will continue to pass laws based on the exchange of their very different views and in the light of public opinion because that's what politics is about. And it's quite different, in fact, to true religious belief. Now, the conservatives among them can continue to come up with contrived secular reasons why, for example, Australia should not have gay marriage like New Zealand or voluntary euthanasia or become a republic. But good luck to them because they'll hold out for as long as they can but the weight of history Max Wallace finds is against them. Now, from the perspective of the advocates of the public square thesis, this decline in overt religious commitment and discussion of religious views in Parliament and the media has got nothing to do with religion itself. And that is the position of the dogs. For example, it's got nothing to do with the Royal Commission into Institutional Abuse of Children in Australia and the ongoing frequent mention of their privileged tax-exempt status and other privileges like exemption from legislation. That is in the public square because it's public money and it's a public commission. So when the basic starting point is flawed like this, chances are the rest of your reasoning will be flawed. But even more to the point, the attack on secularism, particularly by people who want to have um, Christianity imposed upon or the, the, the rules of Christianity or the, um, uh, the morals of Christianity or any other religion, and uh, we can talk about Sharia law here because that is also a theocracy, any, any attempt to impose religious belief onto the laws of a secular country is flawed um, and it refuses to engage a perspective such as that and here Max Wallace quotes a very interesting American Presbyterian T. David Gordon who's written a book on the decline of Christianity in the West a contrarian view and this is what he says he argues that if Christianity is waning it's more due to the religious themselves having sufficient trust in their own faith to be persuasive, absent the coercive power of the state. And this is the doc's position. True religion does not need and does not want to have anything to do with the coercive power of the state. I mean, if you, think, if you go back to, um, to the basis of Christianity, which is Christ's crucifixion, uh, you will see that religious men use the coercive power of the Roman state to crucify Christ himself. So he says, if religious people disbelieve in the power of the Christian gospel to compete on a level playing field, if religious people no longer believe that Christ's example and words have the power to attract people to him, then perhaps Christianity is indeed in decline. But the decline's got nothing to do with assault from without. It's got everything to do with unbelief from within. So thank you to Max Wallace for a very interesting article on online opinion and um, pointing out, of course, that some of the religious people in Australia want to be in the public place pushing 
their uh, morals upon the rest of, of Australians. But the one thing that I want to talk about or have questioned is the billions and billions of dollars going into private schools which divide children in ways that no true Christian could possibly agree to. And they don't want to talk about uh, and have in the public arena the abuse the abuse of children by people who claimed that they were Christians, uh, which I think most Australians find very, very difficult to forgive or to forget. But um, that's enough for me for the moment. Uh, this year is happy birthday time, so we've got some more happy birthdays for you this week. Uh, let's have one uh, from Strauss. I'm not sure whether it is Strauss the father or Strauss the the son, but you can uh, do a waltz around the kitchen to um, happy birthday. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. That was a bit of Strauss saying happy birthday to 3CR. Isn't that nice of him, even though he's dead? That was a performance by Alan Knott. He's a very clever and funny fellow. Now, Jane's been discussing, as we often do here on the Defence of Government Schools Program, the questions of separation of, of the church and the state here in Australia, or religion and the state, if you deal with it at a sort of more political level. Um, the comments that she was making came from some survey work that had been done by Max Wallace, a very good friend of the Dogs Program, and Max is quite um, upbeat about the sort of generational potential for change in terms of separating religion and the state in Australia. But there's been an interesting um, worldwide study done on this particular, this very particular question, and um, the Pew Research Centre in the United States has done a very interesting and, and large-scale survey that's that basically ask the people of the world if they see as God or some form of religious belief is essential to the concept of morality, that is, leading a good life. And around the world, many people think that it is necessary to believe in God to be a moral person. And according to the survey in 39 countries by the Pew Research Centre, however, this view is more common in poorer countries than in wealthier countries, and I think this is interesting. In 22 of the 39 countries surveyed, clear majorities of people in those countries say it is necessary to believe in God, to be moral and to have good values. This position is highly prevalent, if not universal, in Africa and the Middle East. Now notice here we're not talking about what type of God, we're just saying a God. 
At least three quarters in all six countries surveyed in Africa said that faith in God is essential to morality. In the Middle East, roughly seven in ten or more agreed. That is in Egypt, Jordan, Turkey and the Palestinian territories, Tunisia and Lebanon. Across the two regions, only in Israel do a majority think that it is not necessary to believe in God to be an upright person. Now, in North America and Europe, more people agree that it is possible to be non-religious and still be an upright person. At least half in nearly every country surveyed take this view, including roughly 1810 or more in France, Spain, the Czech Republic and Britain. In these, two region, in these two regions, it is interesting that Americans are unique because in America, as opposed to many other Western countries, 53% of the people who live in America say that belief in God is necessary to be an upright person. Now, in all of these studies, it's interesting, they, they came to Australia and asked us questions as well. And Australia has um, a GDP per capita which is higher than just about every country on the planet, except for uh, uh, Canada and the US. And it is interesting that around about 21% of people in Australia believe that you have to believe in some form of religious belief, have to believe in God um, to be an upright person whereas about 79% of our population think that that is not necessarily the case. So I think in the micro world of Australia, Max Wallace has good reason to be um, optimistic about the maintenance and the strengthening of ideas of separation from religion in the state here in Australia. But around the world, certainly in Africa and the Middle East, um, I don't think Max's thesis quite holds in the same way. And indeed, surprisingly, in the United States of America, where there seems to be a surge in religiosity, as it's termed, um, at the moment, and perhaps it's growing, um, the problems that Max Wallace sees being overcome here in Australia, I think, are less likely to be tackled, which is strange in many ways, because I'm sure, as Jean will tell you, historically the United States is the birthplace in many ways, or one of the sort of cradles or the... Um, or the nurseries of this idea of secularism as it manifests today. Is that true, Jane? Uh, I think you'll find it back in the, in the very early Christian period, actually. Secularism is a very complex term, and you better ask your father all about it since he's the expert and has written very... Um, with, with recognition, he is recognised as an Australian expert. But, look, we won't get academic today because... Um, or any more, I'm sorry, we have been a little bit... Um, on the ideas side, public education in the end is about children. It's about our children. It's about the children and opportunities for uh, uh, having opportunities for life, for a job, for a good life, uh, a moral one, a religious one if you like, but that's their business in the end. But we are in a terrible position here in Australia with our governments who believe that for some unknown reason, private is better than public, and they are privatising one of the most important public institutions, education institutions in this country, namely TAFE. And I would like to take you to the grassroots and play for you uh, an interview with a teacher in TAFE who is confronted with lack of money for his children his children in the west of Sydney who did have opportunities and are now looking at having these opportunities taken away because TAFE is being privatised and the fees, the fees for the profiteering on education in this country are exorbitant. We're here at La Lamandra School in Campbelltown. Um, we're a school that provides for uh, kids from year five right up to year 11. Um, kids that come to Lamandra have a broad ran range of mental health issues. It helps with our behavioural learning. Yeah, it's helped, it's helped us through all the years that I've been here. Like, I used to go bad at my old school, like, they never helped me. They always used to, like, say, or oh, go to the teacher, but every time I did, nothing ever happened. So I had to sort it out for myself, like, in physical way. Recently we found out that uh, our senior kids um, here at the Manager School have, um, have, have had one of their big opportunities taken away from them. Um, 
a huge part of their senior programme in our school is uh, their access to TAFE courses. That access has been denied to our our 16-year-old kids, our year 11s. So it's been a big it's been a big issue for us, and um, it's really hampered their education. It's hampered our efforts to get them ready for life after school, um, get them ready for the adult world, getting into the community. Um, some of the biggest challenges we have with these kids, like I said, the kids have um, all all types of mental health issues and behavioural issues. Um, Kids can come from very low socio-economic backgrounds, uh, problems with, with alcohol or drugs in the home, um, you know, an absence of role models, uh, things like that. So what we try to do is give them as many, especially the senior kids, give them as many experiences as we can. We've had some huge successes in the past where we've had kids who've come from um, literally their anxieties won't allow them to get out of bed and come to school in the morning. And we've got kids like that to to get through a six-month trade skills course and come out with a, a certificate too at the end um, and, and be able to use that to apply for jobs around the area. And that, that one of those students in particular now is just working with a local painter and decorator, like working four or five days a week. 18 months ago, he was, you know, just sitting at home, didn't want to leave the house. So that's a massive success for us. But he, he didn't just rock up on day one and start off. He, he dropped out. 10 times and we got him back in 10 times he he failed to show up we'd drive to his house we'd get him out of bed we'd get him in there he might be late but we'd have a chat to the teacher it's that sort of one-on-one full-time support that some of our kids absolutely need um we were being told or we were told at the start of the year that for our, kid, our kids can still do these courses no problem but they just need to drop out of school or pay the full fees it could be five grand it could be ten grand it may as well be a million for, for our kids. Yeah, like the younger ones that come in won't have the, um, like if the government hasn't bring back that funding then they're not going to have the same experience as what we had. And some of the kids can't read still and they're in year nine and if they take the TAFE schools away they will be too bored to stay at school. So therefore that's forcing them out. Like, I know my mates and they will leave because nothing's here from them. When there's nothing here, what else do you do? You leave. Well, you've been listening to the students at the School for Troubled Children uh, at Lomandra because uh, teachers have been warned that a New South Wales government are going to freeze the TAFE fees. And so it's just not going to be enough. They won't have enough money to curb plummeting enrolments in the state's public vocational educational provider. What they're doing is they're running down the public provider and building up the private ones. Fees have been frozen at their 2015 levels in a bid to lure back students to the struggling institution. Now, since 2012, 83,000 fewer students have enrolled in TAFE New South Wales campuses because the fees in some courses have surged as much as seven times 2013 levels. So what has the government done? They've set up a parliamentary inquiry into vocational in- education. It's like being in a morgue, one TAFE teacher wrote in a submission to the inquiry. And the New South Wales TAFE Teachers Association President Phil Chadwick said that the government was trying to backtrack now that it had realised it's made a very, very big mistake. It's going to have more disaffected males on the streets. Uh, this is a recipe for radicalisation of any sort, I would have thought. Um, having an inquiry is a good start, but it's a band-aid solution. Mr Chadwick said the high fees were the reason we saw the decrease in enrolments, but the students are still going to have to pay them. Courses in areas such as aged care surged nearly four times in price, between $570 in 2014 and $2,300 in 2015, and diplomas in information technology and electrical engineering saw similar rises. Well, ordinary children can't pay those kind of um, those kind of fees. Um, former TAFE student Patrick Wright told Fairfax Media that he dropped out of his library technician's course after it quadrupled in price. I just couldn't justify the cost, the Cronulla boy said. The Enmore Designs student, Minta Furness, echoed his disappointment at the time. The debt's just too great. 
It went up from $1,200 last year to $12,000 this year, and you never know if you're going to be able to pay it back with the income from design, she said. Last year we had six classes of 15 students, this year we had one class of 10, and she was shocked to see just how many people weren't there anymore. It's a bid to stop, in a bid to stop empty classrooms from multiplying, fees will now be frozen at those, as we said before. But it's ridiculous, really, that there should be fees at all for these children. The Greens MP, John Kay, and he is a bright light in the political scene of Australia. He is an ex-public school teacher. He said that the shift would stop the provider from bleeding badly. If it turned students away last year, then it'll turn them away this year, he said. TAFE teachers remain concerned about the much maligned Department of Education's $576 million IT system's ability to cope with the enrolments at all. Last year, the former TAFE Managing Director, Pam Christie, was forced to apologise for enrolment delays which were caused by the systems. And the systems problems are still enormous. So you can see up there in New South Wales, they are starting to experience what has already happened down here in Victoria to the TAFE system. And this, of course, is what privatisation means. And they're starting to wake up to it in the United States. And I'll hand you over to Robert in a moment. So here's a few comments, and I'll get um, Dale to read you some of these comments. Thanks, Jean. The first uh, comment so far is uh, from Private Citizen. Uh, how they have screwed the vocational sector, starving a trusted accredited educator so the private sector can grab at fee schemes. TAFE needs to be able to provide certainty. Agree to a price, the whole course, not jack up the price each year like a shark. They need to ensure that the course will be fully resourced for all of the years of the whole course at the institution that first offers the course. TAFE and private providers need to be held need to be held accountable under the Trade Practices Act. We should be able to seek recourse when they fail to deliver. Finally, the government needs to be held accountable. What was their rationale for doing this to TAFE? What was the community benefit supposed to be? Who's going to take responsibility for this ideological failure? And another comment from Cynic. Spot on PC. TAFE has always been the go-to place to get a useful, practical education as opposed to expensive, useless bits of paper. I guess forcing them to shut down is the politician's way of giving people no other choice than to fork out for expensive uni or private training education. In the end, we'll just become more useless in debt slavery with no means to pay it back due to lack of jobs. I say we shut down government instead of TAFE. I know which one is better for us on the whole. And and just a final comment here from Sir Rex. I agree with all you say, but you're making one big assumption, and that's that this government actually cares. Across all sectors, they're exhibiting classic liberal behaviour, just like Howard and Costello, sell everything for a fast buck now and leave financial and infrastructure sinkholes for future generations and make everything else private. They have been softening up TAFE for a couple of years, favouring the private trading at training colleges, and hasn't that worked out well lately? And ensuring TAFE suffers a classic death by 1,000 cuts. Eventually, they'll stay They'll stand back and say, look, the public no longer wants archaic institutions like TAFE. We need to sell the land off and privatise it totally. This mob are just slowly but surely and stealthily selling and privatising this whole state. By the time they're done, all future external review streams, revenue streams will be gone and we, the people, will no longer own anything of real value. And add to that all new public projects are heavily privatised like the new metro system which is nothing more than the precursor or dry run for the sale of Sydney's rail network. People are so fooled by smiling Mike they can't see past the uber white smile and gelled hair. Indeed. Thank you Dale. You're listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. It's good to have your company. We are the Dogs, defenders of government schools and indeed defenders of TAFE as well. 
Um, if you're interested in what we're talking about, you can actually catch up with us at our website, which is www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. Um, the teachers at TAFE are the ones that are starting to work out exactly, because they're at the coalface. I mean, quite frankly, I cannot even begin to understand how they expected anything different to happen than what has happened. If you're going to privatise uh, technical and further education by, by contracting it out, that means you're going to kill the, um, uh, the, the, the government-run system. The TAFE system, by definition, will be, de- will be killed by a death of a thousand cuts. And then once it's gone, there will only be private providers. And private providers are, and quite, quite open about it, interested in one thing and one thing only, which is, of course, providing value for their shareholders. They're not, no, they're not specifically interested in educating people effectively or well for the benefit well, of the nation. Well, I think that people should actually look at what's happening to the TAFE sector and the privatisation of it and then realise that without the Gonski money coming through in two years, you're going to have the same thing happening, or this is what the current government believe it is possible they can impose upon the Australian people, namely privatisation of public education all through the board. They don't care. They say they have uh, private education in their DNA and they think that private is best. You should leave it to the private sector to educate all of the children of the country. Of course, they're not going to educate all of the children. There's going to be large numbers of children who will be left well, they'll just be left because they really don't care. Thank you very much, Jean. I think that's actually a very fair point. Um, in America at the moment, they're having very similar problems and often we say here at the Dogs, if you want to look into the future, all you have to do is look over the Pacific Ocean to our neighbours on the other side and what they are doing is what we will be doing. And in Detroit, just in the last week gone by, there's been a very interesting uh, series of events uh, The the teachers of Detroit, of Detroit in their public schools have decided, well, they haven't gone on strike. Um, that's the one thing they haven't done because they're not allowed to because their union doesn't want them to. Um, they've had what's called a sick out. And I'll just explain exactly what's going on here. And I'm quoting here from the World Socialist website um, from the January 13th this year when they say that the Detroit teachers um, are actually having a sick out in complaining about the deplorable conditions in their schools and indeed the workers have done something about it. Now, on Monday just gone, hundreds of teachers took part in this coordinated sick out that closed to two-thirds of the district's 97 schools. The following day, 24 of those schools were still closed. The job action has been organised independently of the Detroit Federation of Teachers because that union has long been collaborating in a bipartisan attack on the teachers and indeed the public schools. The unions in in Detroit have effectively been bought out. Now I'd like to draw a parallel to that to what's going on here in in Victoria where the teachers' unions, the Australian Education Union here in Victoria, I would say has not been bought out But there is this thing called the Victorian Institute of Teaching, which every teacher has to pay their money to, Mm. uh, which indeed is a government instrumentality and has never advocated for teachers' rights under any situation. So we're getting there here in Victoria, but they're already there um, in Detroit. Now, the Michigan governor, who's responsible for the schools in Detroit, Richard Snyder, and his state-appointed emergency manager, Daniel Early, who are hypocritically denouncing the teachers in, in, because of this action and accusing them of abandoning their students. But the enemies, of course, of these children are not their teachers, but in fact the governor himself and his emergency services manager, who are, as we speak, taking school funds and teachers' pensions and handing that money over to, have a guess, privately owned, profit-driven charter school firms who are running the, the schools that are in competition across the road. Now, this movement in Detroit has largely been organised by the Rank and File Teachers Association through Facebook, just believe it or not. Um, they're called the, the DPS Teachers, and they want to fight back, which stresses they are not, in fact, associated with any faction to do with the Teachers Union or its parent union, the American Federation of Teachers. Describing this this organisation, the DPS, 
as a union within a union, the insurgent movement of teachers is giving voice to, the, to a growing militancy and mood of resistance that is spreading among the workers throughout the United States and indeed here in Australia as well. There are rumblings. Well, we're a bit sick of tame cat unions, aren't we? Yes, indeed. Mm. It's no accident the social opposition is taking the form of rebellion, actually, against existing trade unions, which have long served as the industrial police for the corporations and, indeed, the government. Now, Detroit, which, by the way, has the highest per capita income in the US in the 1960s and one of the nation's best school systems at that time, was, of course, ravaged um, by plant closings, layoffs and decimation of social services since that time. It was transformed into the biggest, poorest city in America. Now, far from opposing this, the various teachers' federations and unions um, um, attacked, indeed, according to the World Socialist website, the working classes at that time. Now, the Detroit schools have been, actually now, under emergency management for nearly a decade. In 2011, Obama's Education Secretary, Arne Duncan, called the city ground zero for educational reform across the country. In the months of politicians and media commentators, reform was a code word for dismantling the public education and its transformation into a for-profit, privately run business openly organised along class lines, with working class children condemned to dilapidated holding pens where education was indeed made impossible. Does it ring any bells to um, the education system and parents in Australia? I think it does. Now, the Obama administration has fully backed the efforts by the Republican governor and other various local Democrats to punish the teachers because they've done this sick out. Now, I think the fundamental question here is why, why are the teachers going on a sick out? Because they can't, in the current American climate, go on strike. The unions in America at the moment um, cannot go on strike. In fact... The rate of industrial action in America at the moment is as low as it's been since 1947. In fact, there is next to no industrial action in that country, and indeed I think we'll find parallels here in Australia. If something is going wrong and the people who who are at the coalface decide it's going wrong, like indeed in TAFE, colleges that Jean was talking about earlier in the program, if things are going wrong... Industrial action is not something that's seen as an option these days. People just have to wring their hands and and live with it. And indeed, that is part of the sickness, I think, that's going on here in Australia in the education system. When an education system is defunded and left to rot, nothing can actually be done because we live in a world where that sort of action no longer take place no longer takes place not like the Richmond secondary college days where people would get out in the streets and do something about it now don't be so so pessimistic i've got in front of me thanks to neil and uh, margaret a very interesting article from the docklands news there are huge buildings being put up in melbourne some of us might think that they're an eyesore but they contain people, and these people are actually breeding. They are having children. And down in the Docklands, where there's quite a lot of these couples with children, they want a school. And the, um, there's a recently formed community stakeholder group down there in the Docklands, and they're going to have a say, and they're demanding that they have a say, on the continuing review of the school needs in the Docklands. And we'll be hearing more about that after this little bit of music again to say happy birthday to 3CR. 40 years on the air supporting the community. Well, before Chopin, um, giving us a happy birthday rendition, a la Alan Knott, um, we had a reference to the Docklands, and here it is from the Docklands News, issue 115. Thank you, uh, Neil and Margaret. I don't know whether you were having a coffee down there, but um, everything is normal when I get material from people through my front door. And I'm told that the community will have a say in the continuing review of school needs in Docklands via a recently formed community stakeholder group. 
The Department of Education and Training is currently completing a review to assess primary and secondary school provision in the Docklands, North Melbourne, the CBD and Carlton. According to an Education Department spokesperson, the Community Reference Group comprises 17 members, members, including 10 Docklands residents, and the remainder live in nearby suburbs, and the group also includes teachers and principals. So those of us who are associated with the North Melbourne's lack of facilities, and I assure you there are, are very interested in this. There are already facilities there for North Melbourne, but they were closed. We lost our West Melbourne, uh, West Melbourne school to the Salvos, who made a nice tidy profit with the Gill Memorial sale down the street in the CBD. Uh, so we lost our West Melbourne school when uh, Mr Kennett gave our school to them and then gave them a few million to do it up. And we lost our Boundary Road school and we have our Errol Street North Melbourne School, a wonderful school, which has now got so many children and they have got so many uh, who are being enrolled next year that I really don't know where they're going to put them. But we could always get our printing school back up in Queensbury Street. Uh, that should be open now instead of having it for principals from private schools to be um, given professional development. Um, and uh, there is now going to be a Haleybury College, which they have spent $52 million on down in King Street. Nobody was asked about their planning permit. We were never told about this planning permit for this Haleybury School in King Street in their $52 million campus, but it is starting, we are told, next year. So... Um, one would like to know a lot more about this particular uh, proposal. Uh, but there's another lady called Serena Chung, who's one of the Docklands residents, who's nominated for a position and who's been appointed to this inquiry. But quite seriously, this inquiry shouldn't take more than a few months. We need schools and we need them now. But this is the way, of course, schools have always happened. They've happened because the local communities and the teachers have demanded them. And this Serena Chung sounds a very interesting lady. She says, I love the Docklands. I love living here. It's such a great community. I work in the CBD and my husband works in Docklands, so it's very convenient. But without a local school, we'll be forced to move. And she said that many parents in her mother's group are facing the same difficulties with many considering moving out of the area due to the lack of schooling options. She's nominated herself for the um, group in order to advocate for a bilingual school in Docklands because she has a, a Chinese background. She'd really want to advocate for a bilingual school. And what a good idea. She wants her children to keep the culture and to learn the language. At the moment, uh, with the loat being cut back, um, one wonders whether or not our children in the primary school are going to get any loat or language classes at all. I know that my grandson gets a bit of Italian, but um, given all the different Chinese and other Asian children that are now in the area... Um, one wonders whether that is the right language for him. That would be fine up in Carlton, perhaps. There are children living here who want to be educated in the suburb that they live in, and it's just as important for the wider community. So it is the parents, in the end, who will fight for their children. And um, there is really uh, no animal that is quite so... Um, I wouldn't say dangerous, but determined as a determined mother a mother who's determined to give her child a chance. And I think a lot of parents in Australia are starting to wake up that the public school in the local community is really the best that they can give their children. Yes, it is, it is a great hope for the future that all those dangerous and protective and wonderful mothers out there will not necessarily fight each other. 
um, for the benefit of their particular child, but will come together and fight together for the education, not just of their child, but all their neighbours' children and all their neighbours' neighbours' children. Well, you can put and the that, grandmothers in there too. Oh, you can put, you can put, well, yes, yes. Like your grandmothers, put, put them on the front line, I say. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. Put, put them on the front line. <laughs> that will be the first go down. and They can be the martyrs in the great battle for public education. <laughs> I think that's a brilliant idea. You've been listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. We've been ranging all around the world, from America all the way down to the micro problems of inner city Melbourne and the parents and their desire to educate their children there. We are The Dogs Program and you can get hold of us and investigate what we're doing and indeed get a transcript of Jean's press releases, which we started the program with, and press releases all the way back through the years because we've been here for some time at our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be disappearing to do some more research and if people have more things to drop on our doorsteps or in our post boxes or in our email boxes or if you can email the dogs themselves, please do. Let us know what's going on because that's how the whole thing works. It's a community endeavour, the protection of government schools, the defence of government schools, the D-O-G-S, the dogs. But until then, it's bye for now. Ten years dead, I never.